1: I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics.
2: Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live, to our choices around marriage and family.
1: But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely.
2: Choices, trade-offs priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are excited today. We're going to talk through some feedback and an article that I'm really excited to get Sarah's thoughts on. And then we have a special guest joining us today, To talk about pelvic floor health, which might sound a little niche, but we promise it's important. (laughs) It's not. Everybody has a pelvic floor muscle. That's what we learned in this main segment. Everybody has a pelvic floor muscle, and we really think that this does a good job of getting into some of these things that we're always saying we should talk more about. And we don't talk enough about our pelvic floors, so we're going to do that today. And then, as always, we will end with something a little bit inspirational. Sarah and I separately chose poems today that I feel are nice compliments to one another, and so that's how we'll wrap up. But first, we have
1: a favor to ask you. We've been talking about this on Pantsu Politics, and we wanted to share it on The Nuance Life as well. This community is a huge, huge blessing to both of us, and we read every message that comes through Facebook, Twitter, and our email, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger job, especially with The Nuance Life growing. So we want to continue to do that, but we also want to have time to grow the shows, so we need your help. If you are simply sharing to share and do not need a response from us, please put that in your subject line or in the beginning of your message on Twitter or Facebook. Like you don't have to figure out a fun subject line or intro and it removes us feeling the pressure to respond, which we do because your messages are so thoughtful. So it always feels like, oh my God, they'll hate us if we don't respond. So if you don't need to respond, just let us know. If you do, please don't hesitate to ask for it. We love giving advice and we know many of you reach out to us for help and guidance and we take that very seriously. So that's fine. But if you're just sharing, just put a little no response needed in the subject line and thank you all so much for your help.
2: So we wanted to start off with some feedback on our loneliness discussion. Lissa wrote to us and just knocked it out of the park. She yes. nailed it. She said, I think why sorting creates loneliness is that it prioritizes conformity and thus it increases the emotional risk of differences. Woo!
1: Let's just sit with that for a minute. I know. Tweetable. I read that like five times.
2: It's so good. I just read
1: Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness and I kept waiting for her to explain to me why
2: sorting invented and she sort of talks about a little bit but she did not nail it as clearly as did. the emotional risk of differences
1: Mm. Mm. is
2: kind of the answer to everything going on in our country right now and i think it really gets to what creates so much fear however that fear manifests itself in all of our relationships yep It's so true. And when she
1: talks specifically, she said, I think this is why people can feel more lonely within their own community of faith than when visiting a stranger's community. When you are a real stranger, your differences are expected and welcomed. Within your own community, there are expectations of beliefs and behavior, and those areas where you don't meet those expectations can create more sense of loneliness. I think I personally feel the most lonely in the places where I'm expected to be part of the group and know the rules, but
2: for some reason feel I don't quite fit in. Story of my life. I mean, when when I read this paragraph, I thought, this explains so much to me about why I am the loneliest in some of my closest relationships. So I've also been thinking a lot about our
1: loneliness discussion and how it manifests for you and I differently. And here's what I've decided. So I was listening to, you know, I find you to be such a thoughtful person and such a considerate person. I'm like, so I started getting in my head and I'm like... Man, am I not thoughtful or considerate? I really do care about other people. But here's what I realized. Here's the difference for me. I care deeply if someone is happy. And maybe a different word for happy. Like, I always use the word harmony. Like, I can tell when there's disharmony in the group or someone feel like there's disharmony between me and another person. I feel I've got a pretty sharp antenna for that. I don't like it. But here's what I don't care about, and I think this is the difference. I do not care if people are comfortable. Like, if you're uncomfortable because something is bad, then let's talk about what's bad. I don't really care about making other people comfortable. This is not a very female characteristic that I – this is how I feel like I'm different than a lot of my close, dear friends who I think are, like, super considerate and awesome people like you. Like, I don't feel motivated by discomfort. Unhappiness, sadness, grief, all that, highly motivating for me. Want to help, want to fix it, want to do everything. But,
2: like, discomfort, yeah, I don't care. I care a lot about making people feel comfortable. See, and, yeah. I and just I don't. do think that's a, a key difference between the two of us. Absolutely.
1: And I think that, like, it's, you know, like, it's hard because when she was saying this, too, the, the difference thing. I've been thinking a lot. I just brought this up on Pantsy Politics. That's how y'all know I'm thinking about something a lot is because I talk about it on both podcasts. So if you listen to both, that's okay. You're just going to be super inside my own head about what I'm currently obsessing about. So I just read Marcus Borg's Meeting Jesus Again for the first time. And he talks about the difference between conventional wisdom and alternative wisdom and I just found I just think that like conventional wisdom to me I think this is because I'm a questioner under the four tendencies there's just a big part of my brain that's like yeah but why do we got to do it that way like I just don't like conventional wisdom and so being different and and maybe because I'm just so comfortable being the person who's like I know we're all doing it like that but I don't want to do it like that anymore like I just an alternative wisdom discomfort in the face of the status quo like I a little bit thrive on it
2: is that bad no, I don't think it's bad. And I I am very comfortable myself being uncomfortable. Yeah, you're a good I mean, you question, you're a questioner. I am a questioner. I also I think recognize that other people generally are not questioners and are not comfortable being uncomfortable. That is true. That is true. And I had to learn that. I had some really good friends in college that were like, "Hey, not all of us like arguing all the time." And I'm like, "All right, you're right. You're right. That's fair. That's fair." Well, and recognizing that other people don't thrive on it, it has also become really clear to me that most people are not at their best when they're uncomfortable. That's true. And that discomfort brings out all kinds of fear and anger and anxiety. And so I think that my, as you refer to it sometimes, my sort of practiced nice girl tendency is centered around, let me make you comfortable so I can get the best of you. You know, and so you in this interaction with me can be your best self because I know that's not gonna happen for you if I make you uncomfortable.
1: See, and my brain immediately went like, okay, that's the fear. Let's get it all out, let's all get it out so we can be our best selves. Like, let's just expose all our fears and vulnerabilities and talk about, like, I, always, I often make the joke that me and my best friend say we meet people and the first thing out of our mouth is, what's the meanest thing your dad ever said to you? Like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm like, okay, this is great. This is where the good stuff happens. Like, let's all work through our deepest, darkest fears after we meet each other five minutes later. And it's going to be great. Like, that's just, it's so funny because I, I think that I internalized younger that people don't like conflict. But I don't know if I fully come around to like people. I don't know if I will ever come around to like people don't like discomfort because I'm like, come on, y'all. Those are
2: the best episodes of Oprah. The ones that make you a little bit uncomfortable. That's how you know you're learning. I think that's true. What I realize more and more, though, is that a lot of people don't have the capacity to say what the meanest thing their dad ever said was. It is a process of unfolding. You get more honest over time and with life experience, you get better at just putting your stuff out there as you're asked to, some people don't have the language to have that conversation right out of the gate. And I don't know that shocking them into it, you know, for me, that's part of the reason to make someone comfortable to say, it's, you can't unfold here. Right. And what I have done badly for myself is saying, I get to unfold somewhere too. Instead of just saying, come and un- unfold with me, I'm safe. Uh, But where do I do that work? I'm getting better at it. But that's, I think, where a lot of my loneliness comes in, that sense that I have a place in a group, and my place is usually to help other people unfold, but I don't belong.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's, my husband always says, look, you're a challenging person. That's okay. Like, you're just a challenging person. Like, I guess I just think, well, here, let me show you, like you said, like, I'm just sort of wherever I am I am where I am who I am wherever I am and so I guess I'm always like well I'm, I'm totally exposed and vulnerable isn't everyone comfortable being like that <laughs> like, I'm learning like no I'm I'm really thinking through your sensitivity to consciousness right like I just am I know this sounds crazy to say at 36 years old that it's just now occurring to me that like people are at different levels of consciousness But it kind of is occurring, which probably doesn't speak to high levels of consciousness within myself. But I guess I just I'm realizing like, yeah, we're all at different levels of understanding this and thinking about these things. And some people just aren't there yet. And that's okay.
2: I think that because I worked in a place that had so many people who were significantly older than me, my Mm. whole working cohort for the most part was significantly older than me. I just started to watch people and think to myself, oh, this is just your first time through the universe. That's what it has to be. You know, you are in your 50s or 60s and you're behaving this way. It's just your first time through and and it'll change for you as you evolve more. Because I, I do think people are in really different places and it often has absolutely nothing to do with age or even life experience. You know, it's just where people are. That's such a nicer way to put it, though, because usually I was just like, how is this person, an adult
1: in life, acting like this still? <laughs> yeah. You have such a nicer way to think about it.
2: It's kind of the metaphysical equivalent of my be careful friend on the road. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just your first time through. It's OK. Another thing that Lissa said in her message was she talked about how her grandfather said to her as a teenager that he loved her even when he didn't like her and that he would always love her, and that was really important to her. And I have always had this framework for people of, I kind of see like and love and respect as three different things. And Lissa's message reminded me of that. And I'm not sure that everybody sees those as distinct things. And so for me, respect is a big trigger. And sometimes I feel disrespected by my husband, who I know loves me, But it's really a big deal to me that he both love me and respect me. I want him to like me, too. I'm a difficult person that way. I need all of those from him. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that some of our hurt with each other and some of our disconnection with each other is that a lot of us don't understand that I can be mad at you and still love you. I can love you and not like you at a particular time, you know, And, and just kind of breaking apart all these different emotions, and still having a sense of security about each other.
1: And I can di- I can disagree with you and still respect you as a human being.
2: Yes, yes. Mm. Hmm. Or, mm-hmm. as Chad would be quick to note, I can be trying to offer you a better way to do something and still respect you as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: So speaking of men, this seems like a good transaction or a good, good transition. I had another listener that said she thinks through everything. I think she said she had a, an instructor who told her this at one time, that for men, it's the options are fix, protect, provide, fix, protect, provide. Like those are the only three sort of paths we give to men to deal with problems with other people or otherwise.
2: I think that's true. And I think that part of the work that we talked about in our last episode is to free men of only those three categories. And I think where a lot of men struggle with hearing phrases like toxic masculinity is that they don't want those verbs taken from them. And I was having this discussion with Chad, like, I don't want to talk about this in a way that's limiting to you. If you need to fix, protect, and provide, awesome. I just want you to be able to do other things too.
1: Well, I was thinking about this and I had a day on, I guess this was Thursday, where I met with a man in my community who is advocating for a municipal broadband. We met together with the power department. I met with a very dear friend of mine who is sort of offering me. He's just a dear friend. He just offers me great advice, and we really enjoy each other's company. And then I met with two guys I went to high school with, that were one who was advocating for our community and then one who sort of joined us. And we had a great time. We talked about the past, and we talked about the future. And I just was like, it was kind of like a man day. Like, I just met with men all day. And at the end of the day, I thought, these are, these are really great men in my life. And I, I also met with a man who's one of my – just what I consider a really great mentor. And I'm really good at telling, like, the adult female friends I have, like, how important they are to me and how much they help and how I see them doing great things in our community. And I'm just not great at doing that with the men in my life, and so I sent an email the next morning. I sent it to all of them because I think there is always this like we, this struggle bus we all get on when there's two married a married woman and a married man interacting professionally together. So I thought, well, if I said it as a group chat, nobody can think it's weird. <laughs> group email. And I said, yesterday I met with each one of you at one point or the other. I watched you advocate for our community. You offered me great advice. You made me laugh. I so often tell the women in my life how awesome they are and how much they mean to me. But I realized I don't often do that for the men. So I wanted to take a minute this morning to say how much I appreciate every one of you. I see you. I see how smart and caring you are. I see how much you love your families and your friends and this community. Thank you for all the hard work you do. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being an example for me. And most importantly, thank you for being a good example for my three boys. Have a great weekend, Sarah. That's and lovely. It just it just felt so good to say like, hey, men, white straight men, <laughs> I see you. You are working hard. You are doing things not because you're getting paid, not only under the mantle of Fix, Protect, Provide, and just like, I have some really amazing men in my community, in my life, and it felt really good to recognize them and to say like, hey, thanks. And I just, I realized I need to do that more for the adult men in my life. I think we, it's, we forget that they need to hear that. And because I think so often for adult men, often they're sort of emotional labor because we don't recognize them and appreciate them or are comfortable expressing emotions to them. It all falls on their wives, and, like, as the wife of a man who I love, like, it's a lot. Like, I, there's a lot of times where I feel like, hey, I can't meet every emotional you, need you have. You know, I think that that sort of becomes the only safe space at which they can express or be appreciated. And, one, none of us are really super great at appreciating our spouse spouses. At least I'm not. And, two, like, they need, there's needs to be other outlets You need to hear it from other people. And so I just thought I need to do
2: that more often. And we need to get off the struggle bus about women and men Especially to married people interacting professionally or having a friendship or otherwise. It makes me so irritated that that is such a problem in our society. Mm -hmm. But I think that because it is and just recognizing things as they are, just having really open conversations about that is the best way to do it right
1: yeah I think we think we're protecting I think it's under this narrative of we're protecting the the married men are protecting themselves the Mike Pence effect right right but when I wrote that email and I thought about it like no that is damaging men to feel like they can't yes. reach out and exp- in, and find healthy platonic ways to emotionally express themselves that is limiting because women have more venues for that than men do generally and so to cut
2: off whole other avenues for them that sucks. It it does suck. It sucks for you to be able to say, I love you to some friends and not others because of gender. That's ridiculous. Well, appreciating the men in our, in our lives as a theme. I want to say that I had a conversation with Chad this week where I thought we really got out of just fix, protect, provide mode. And it was wonderful. I have been torn up about my mom's most recent Um, surgery and health issues and she's doing fine and I appreciate those of you who kind of heard my voice break and reached out after the last Pantsuit Politics episode but
1: I have a few listeners in my personal life who are like Beth cried is she okay like (laughs) I won't say it's traumatizing because I know you don't want to make
2: people uncomfortable but like it was impactful because I cry every week so well so I appreciate that but I have been upset about it and so I got home and, you know, Chad had been out of town and then I left town to help with mom. And so we hadn't really been together. And Chad is honestly like my charging station. Like, even when I don't talk to him, if I just, like, put a hand on him or something, I'm, I'm my batteries are loaded again. You know, I just need that. And so I was kind of depleted. We hadn't been together. And we sat down on the couch and I said, I just need to just talk for a second. And I'm going to cry and I just need to do this. And I did. And he just sat with me and we ate some ice cream and like (laughs) sort of tangled our feet up together and he didn't try to ask questions or offer suggestions or he did nothing except just be there with me listening. And it was phenomenal. And I think that's all we're talking about when we're saying we want to give men permission to have a greater emotional range. I I don't want him to feel the burden of, I have to change this for her because there's nothing to change there. Nothing. But I felt so comforted and I felt comforted in a different way than a woman friend could have given that to me, even though women friends are usually my source for something like that when it happens. It was great. And so I just want to share that because I know we have a lot of men who listen to us and kind of internalize some of what we say for their own marriages. And just please follow Chad's excellent example on that. It was really wonderful.
1: And it's really hard. It's hard to do. Even as a woman friend with close friends in my life, like, even though I've learned this lesson a million times, I want, I want, I'm a fixer. I want to fix things when sad things happen in my friend's lives. Like, that's sort of where my resource Sherpa comes out. I'm like, it's okay. I have the book. I have the long read. I have the app that will fix this for you. Like, and it's, it is, it's just hard to sit there and witness somebody's sadness. It's a very difficult thing to do.
2: It is. I'm super good at it, but you <laughs> I recognize are. that you that's not everybody else's thing. <laughs> you are. It's true. Okay, there's an article that I've been dying to talk to you about. This is totally switching gears, but it's been on my mind. So I read this piece. It's from The Cut, and it is called Grieving for My Sex Life After My Husband Died. Wow. And it is both a tearjerker and this incredibly hopeful piece of writing, I think. So the woman was writing about how she lost her husband. She's a researcher. She started to realize that she was going through a form of grief specific to missing having sex with her husband. And she started looking for resources about that, and there were none. And what she found were things like, well, what you miss is just touch. And so you can get touch from, you know, a pet. And you can enjoy the... Affection with children and grandchildren. And she was like, No, I don't miss touch. I miss sex. And so then she would find things like, Well, just get back out there, right? Find new partners. And she's like, No, I miss sex with him because we were together 40 years and I can't just go replace that somewhere. Like the intimacy that we shared was something in and of itself that's so special. And I thought that was so. Like, just such a hopeful way to think about sex that is totally different than the cultural framework that we live in. The idea that your intimacy... First of all, that it grows with age. You know, she said, like, it got better and better over their lives. Well, that's different than what we're told all the time, right? Yeah. And second, that it is so personal that that journey that you take together becomes ever more intertwined and less and less replaceable. I think that's beautiful and such a reason to hang in there through difficult times in marriage and to just appreciate what you have with someone.
1: Yeah, that's intense. And I think that I think about that a lot just because as we've discussed on the podcast before, my husband and I are each other's sexual partners. And I think like I just, like, I have no idea. Like, it's not just a different, like, I'm sad for that experience. I have no other experience. (laughs) Like, that would
2: be so crazy. Especially 40 years. 40 years is a long time. It's a long time. And, And she was talking about how, like, we shouldn't deny people that specific grief. Yeah. You know, that specific grief of missing this part of your marriage with a particular person. We just, listen, we're not great at grief, period. We want it to,
1: like, we want to be able to understand it. We want to be able to contain it. We want to be able to march single file through the stages as if that's what it's like. We got to talk about that. That's probably like a whole series, too.
2: A whole series on grief?
0: hmm
2: I think that's true. doesn't sound very uplifting, but I think it's true. And I brought this up not to be, you know, sad or something, but... I actually think that there's there's great optimism to be found in the fact that that is a form of grief, because it maybe is a good reminder to appreciate something before it leaves you. Absolutely. Well, speaking of sex, our next
1: section of the show, we're going to be talking about pelvic health. And y'all, it's a little vagina-y is what we decided at the end. But tell them what you said after our interview. And I said, was that that was very vagina-y? Uh, We need more
2: vagina eat in life. (laughs) No, we do. Because, listen, we have people sending us email about how they don't enjoy sex. And I think that we all need to understand our bodies. I think we all need to embody our bodies more anyway, right? We just need to be in them and work with them and, and get them. But particularly for women, understanding this part of our bodies is key to... Having a better sex life, having a healthier pregnancy, recovering from it, aging with some grace and more ease than we might otherwise. So you know, vagina e all day. There we go. That's the next segment. So we're about to share with you our interview with Kathleen Donahoe from O oh Baby Fitness. She is highly credentialed. We'll put all of her bio information in our show notes, and we hope you enjoy it.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Why don't we start
1: out with you telling us a little bit about your background and why you were inspired to reach out to us after our conversation on on clinching and the like.
3: My background, I worked as a personal trainer for a number of years in college and then moved down to Atlanta when my business partner was starting O Baby Fitness. And I worked for her just as an instructor to start teaching classes and found I loved the spirit of them. So we teach pregnancy and postpartum fitness classes. And as you guys talk so much about, it's as much about building community as it, as it is about exercise. Mm-hmm. And... From there, I, um, my business partner at that time, just had classes in Atlanta, and we began talking. And she asked if I would come on as a partner. And so I went back to school and got my MBA, and came on as a full partner about five years ago. And so I have a, a kind of a blend of of fitness background and and business, and feel really, really passionate and motivated about talking about wellness and and fitness, but more, more holistically wellness in the perinatal period for pregnant women and new moms. And when I listened to your guys you talking about clinching and, and I you guys use this phrase, we should talk about this more. You say that a lot. And immediately I thought, I know I know something that a lot of women should be talking about more. And I think you guys are the right space for it because my, my feelings about how exercise looks in, the, in that period is very different than what the media conveys in terms of bounce back or um, mm-hmm. b- bikini body. or And I don't even like the phrase like mummy tummy. like I think there's this really catchy language around what is my life's work that does not at all reflect what it is and how important I think it is. And it really cuts some people out of The conversation, the nuanced conversation, you might say. So that's why I reached out.
1: So I was so excited when you emailed us because this is something I feel so passionately about. I come by it genetically. So my great-grandmother was... I think at, in her fourth child, my gra- this is her fourth child. Okay. And I think my grandmother told me that she was in bed for a month and the females in our family, like the other female relatives just came and helped with the other kids, but she stayed in bed and recovered for a month. And she was super insistent with my grandmother and my two great aunts that like, you do not lift anything heavier than your baby. This is a time of recovery and taking care of your body. And so that kind of got passed down to me. And mm-hmm. so even with my first, my second son and my first son was only about two, Two, I never lifted any I never lifted anything heavier than my baby. Like my the whole first six weeks that Griffin or Amos was alive, somebody like put Griffin in bed from like my cousins, my like little cousins in middle school, whoever it would, would come and put him in his crib like I never lifted him. And I feel so passionately like that was huge in my recovery, mental, physical, psychological, and I don't have the Issues that so so many of my friends have—the like separation of the abdominal muscles, the incontinence, all those things—and I think it's because it was like this sort of family message that like pelvic health is important, and you should yeah. take care of it. And your body just went through this massive thing, and maybe don't be hauling around a heavy baby in it. the car seat thing is what wears me out. Like I'm I'm pretty close to like just starting to stop perfect strangers with newborns in the car seat and be like, can I carry that for you? You should not be carrying that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. Or how you carry it is can I mean, we talk about like back pain in in postpartum and new moms and it's like, well, look at in a mirror of if you're carrying it like slung over your hip and your hip is cocked out. Like, yeah, mm. that's really gonna mess your back up. I mean, it is they there. So we talk about like carrying like a laundry basket. So mm, the, the closer your baby do, is uh, to, to your center that. or heart. Yeah. So like, and this is why carriers are good. The closer the baby is to your center or we say heart, like the closer in, the less stress there is right. going to be on your joints. And so if they do have to carry a car seat, yeah, just put it in front, carry it like a laundry basket. So, mm-hmm. yes.
1: So tell us what you think is sort of the biggest missed message about pelvic health or what you think the biggest misunderstandings, mischaracterizations are about
2: and maybe before you yes. do that, Kathleen, can you describe mm-hmm. the pelvic floor? I, I feel like a yeah, lot of us just don't even know point. what we're talking about. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes.
3: Good. This is I would I would love to talk about the pelvic floor. So the first thing to know about the pelvic floor is that imagine it as the size of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. So it is Mm -hmm. not just a vaginal muscle. It's not a small muscle. So it connects your pubic bone to your tailbone, to your hip bone, to your hip bone. So think of it as big as a sheet of paper and it is what's underneath. It's the hammock or the sling underneath all your organs. And when you're pregnant, it's what's underneath the baby. And so there's no other muscles in our body that we require to, have, you know, an increasingly heavy weight that goes from your baby goes from nothing to 10 pounds sometimes. And then you have the placenta that there's this weight that's really put on that muscle. And so there's, there's all, there's really exciting stuff happening with pelvic floor health. One thing that we do know is that the old advice of telling women to do pelvic floor lifts up and down, up and down, up and down is not for everyone. And that mm-hmm. some incontinence is caused by an overly tight pelvic floor. And And that that can cause incontinence just as much as a loose one. And it it really ties into you guys talking about the jaw because we know, so right now as you're sitting there, picture that piece of paper, your pelvic floor, and lift and lower it. And you'll find most people that their jaw tightens. And so, right, you feel they work together. And so as you work to relax your jaw, you might find that you have like a healthier pelvic floor too. So we don't want that muscle just to be lifted and tight and held. We want it to be supple and to be properly function. So I'm really passionate about making sure that pregnant women and new moms have access to physical therapy and that even just looking for a women's health physical therapist in your area, that appointment, I think, is the first step to exercise because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to exercise if you pee your pants every time you do any kind of vigorous movement and it's really hard to lose any weight that was gained during pregnancy if you pee your pants every time you have to raise your heart rate like i I think they're really closely tied together and we know that 66 percent of women have incontinence after they have a baby but the recommendation is that if you have it after four months that anything after four months you need you want to go see a physical therapist at that point it's not considered normal
1: although it is common So I I have, well, I have two things. One, Kathleen, you're you're just going to be horrified by this. I had a friend (laughs) whose grandmother gave birth in a military hospital. Now, this is her grandmother. So this was back in, like, the 50s. And they would have them get on the floor, literally after having the baby, like, in the room, and do, like, sit-ups and push-ups.
3: Oh, my gosh.
1: I mean. Can you fathom? Yeah. (laughs) Can you fathom?
3: That's not not recommended now. Although ACOG has changed the recommendations recently to be more liberal after birth, but that's not recommended for
1: sure. Well, I was just going to say that the, can you tell us a little bit more about pelvic floor physical therapy? Like I know I had a dear yep. friend who went and said it was like the most helpful doctor's appointment she's ever been to in her life.
3: Yeah. So, well, I'm going to go back because, so now ACOG, so American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology looks over everything, pregnancy, postpartum, including exercise, and they changed recommendations for postpartum. But one of the recommendations is that you do pelvic floor lifts in the hospital they should be resumed immediately so this is like the new school this is the new push-ups and sit-ups maybe that we'll look back and think it's horrifying but mom <laughs> should note that that you want to find that muscle immediately
1: when you're saying pelvic floor lifts are you talking about kegels
3: yes i am that's exactly okay. what i'm talking about if you picture that um, piece of paper the way that i like to cue them is picture like a wonton wrapper then you're going to lift all four corners of that piece of paper pubic bone tailbone hip bone hip bone lift all four corners and then fully release and that release is just as important as the lift and then you can come into we call them elevators where you think okay i'm gonna lift my pelvic floor up to the first floor and then lift a little higher second floor and then third floor and lift it all the way up and then drop it slowly back down until it finds neutral and another another cool thing about pelvic floor is that The way you push out a baby, and this is a technique that we teach in our classes and I have an app about it, the way that you push out a baby is to have a completely dropped pelvic floor and really engaged abdominals. And that coordination Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is tricky if, if you've never done it because your pelvic floor and transverse, your deep abdominals work together. They usually fire together. And the only time we don't want that to happen is during... The pushing stage of labor um so the basement if you're doing an elevator with your pelvic floor up 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 drop it back down you get to the ground floor then if you're pregnant you want to find the basement too so you have that sensation of a totally dropped pelvic floor
2: that's a really interesting thing i had an amazing doula who taught me that before my first daughter Mm -hmm. was born she was like listen i'm going to teach you how to push so that you do not have tearing She was like, if you have tearing, that is your doctor's fault, not yours, if you do what I tell you to do. And I was like, okay. And so she taught me about that basement and about the way to use the abdominal muscles and the breath. Because the way you breathe to do all of this is like a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because you usually think that with exercise, you're doing the effort on the exhalation but because of the way these muscles function you do it on the inhalation and I'm telling you my 10 pound baby was born and I did not tear because she taught me how to do this and like that is life-changing I mean it
3: truly is life-changing because typically you would have had to learn in the hospital room over the course of many hours how to do that and then with a 10 pound baby if you hadn't had time to practice while you were pregnant you might not have been able to do it honestly like it's It is a tricky thing, and a lot of childbirth classes don't teach it. And I, it, I am very, very fired up about it because I think you know what women are smart, moms are smart, and like we went from really medicalized birth to somehow like we got to trust the mystery, and but also we could just give women all the information and teach them things and. This is also where some of the misinformation around abdominal work in pregnancy came out of because there are some abdominal exercises that are contraindicated for pregnancy that we don't want pregnant women to do. But so for a long time, the recommendation was, okay, because some aren't good, don't do any of them. And like, no, there are some abdominal exercises that are really helpful and women are smart enough to learn and understand the physiology of their own bodies.
1: Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. I have questions though. I don't understand the pelvic floor... I guess where I get confused about it and how to work it out and how to think about it is that it is a, I understand the piece of paper, but this piece of paper has a lot of holes in it, right? I mean, so it's got to get out.
3: (laughs) Yes, yes. It is not, that is a metaphorical piece of paper. Yes, (laughs)
1: absolutely. How do all the different holes in the piece of paper, in that muscle, play to pelvic health? Well, so think about when you pee. And so we
3: talk about the first, the first, the original way we talked about Kegels was to stop the flow of urine. Mm-hmm. right so the bladder your urethra actually gets squeezed by the pelvic floor so it goes through it does that make sense and i'm not yeah. sure if that's actually 100 per- i'm i'm not being 100% precise potentially but that's a way to think about it and like you yeah. know, your whole vaginal and also you know so your glutes interact with it too so most people when they lift their pelvic floor their glutes fire also, you feel your so is it like
1: tight? not to get so anatomical, but are there sections of it that get that if you aren't careful can get like sort of overcompensate for weaker sections of the pelvic floor. Yes.
3: Yes. And so going back to what is a physical therapy, a pelvic yeah, that's what I was physical do. therapy appointment, yeah. there is, it is good to know, and this is not to scare anyone off, it's just so that they know going in, there is an internal exam where they are feeling different parts of the pelvic floor to figure out what's okay. weak and what's, if anything is compromised or if the, if things are firing in in the unison that they should. But after, I mean, honestly, after you've had a baby, most people, it's like, it's all been, not that there's no body stuff or shame then, but just it's an intimate appointment, but that's because having babies is intimate. And so I, I hope people don't feel scared off. And for a lot of people, they just need one appointment, even yeah, if they're not need- yeah. yeah, my friend, they'll only sometimes does. do um, an ultrasound because then you can see how the pelvic floor is working, but usually it does have an internal exam too and you do want to go to a it's a women's health pt is the phrase to google
1: well so how does the pelvic floor health play a part in a lot of the in your abdominal after you have to baby because i have all those friends i have so many friends that have like the separated abdominal muscles and all that is that what is the interrelationship between the two so they're they
3: your transverse abdominals are the muscles that are closest to the baby when you're pregnant Everyone has them though, men, women, everyone. They are the muscle that when you pull your belly button to your spine, so you like, you can do that sitting there, pull your belly yeah. button up and back. Those muscles are the way that we heal abdominal separation. The actual muscles that split are your rectus. Rectus abdominals are the ones that look like a six pack. You know what I mean? Like if you your yeah. a yeah. six pack, those muscles fire anytime there's flexion of the spine. So anytime there's a crunch or a sit up, or a curl in Pilates, any forward curve. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what we're talking about, those rectus abdominals are the ones that split apart. The way that they are pulled back together is by finding and firing the transverse abdominal, the the interior, the inner abdominals, which is pulling the belly button to the spine. And if you picture those rectus abdominals being split, and as the belly button pulls back, they get closer together. Can you visualize that? yeah so that's how we heal abdominal separation and the way that that works with the pelvic floor your transverse abdominals so once we pull the belly button up and back are connected to your pelvic floor and they uh-huh. usually pull fire yeah so that's back to what we don't do when we push out a baby but for everything else a pe- healthy pelvic floor is connected literally physically to the muscle we use to heal diastasis recti or the abdominal separation
1: Oh, okay. So when you're passionate about that post-birth period, what do you Uh feel like you wish everyone understood or what you wish would change about sort of our cultural messages about that time?
3: I think, a lot. I think that women just understanding me pulling my belly button to the spine is all the exercise I need to do for the first mm. couple of weeks or months. That, that is what exercise look like. It, it, it might look like a walk too, but it doesn't have to actually. It can just be as simple as every time I sit down to feed my baby, I'm going to make sure my belly button pulls, is pulled up and in. And if a mom is doing that, they're changing their body. They're rehabbing their body to get it ready to exercise down the road. The other, the thing that's related to that is that oblique work, so twisting work or shortening side to side, that abdominal work is not recommended for pregnancy or up to six months postpartum. Six months? Wow. So it's actually longer than that. It's six months postpartum or until that abdominal separation is healed or rehabbed, I should say, whichever is later. So for yeah. some people, you know, I have people that I train to teach classes, and they're like 40 years old, they've got a 10 year old, and I teach them how to check abdominal separation, they check themselves, they're like, I have a two finger split, no wonder I have really bad back pain, and some incontinence, like, they're really, related. Oh, so then you want to pull yeah. those back together, until we train up the obliques. Huh. Is that too much information? I could just, like, really go down the rabbit hole
2: here. But it's important "Hmm." for people who will never be pregnant, too, right? Because pelvic floor health, can you talk about pelvic floor health beyond pregnancy? I mean, it's a very big deal for your sexual health, for your posture in general. Like, can you kind of go beyond the pregnancy period, too? I mean, I'm only, pregnancy and postpartum is the only, my only real training, I'll say. Or
3: not. Real training, but that's my specialty. Um, but we do know, and as, as the as a woman gets older, her pelvic floor often gets weaker, and so there's incontinence in the perinatal period, and there's often with age too. So teaching everyone to lift and lower find those wontons and those elevators it's also helpful to know that men have men have pelvic floor too and actually and the way that I teach in when I teach um, couples how to push out a baby and want the dad to understand it the image for a man is and you guys can cut this if it's too blue but um is of walking into cold water and them trying to pull their balls up into their body
0: <laughs> do you know what I
3: mean yeah like, and they'll look at me when I say, "You have a pelvic floor too, Dad," and they'll like give me this look. And then I say that, and their eyes just light up like, "Oh <laughs> yeah, that!" And the only the only actual research about pelvic floors and men that I've seen is that we know it improves sexual function. So, get uh-huh. to get in, men. That's motivating. So, yeah, that's that's a very brief answer to the pelvic the pelvic
1: health outside
3: of. Pregnancy
1: so, is it a big source of lower? Is it a big source of lower back pain? Can a weak, a weak pelvic floor no matter your gender or life experiences contribute to low back? Yeah,
3: pain? yeah. Well, and absolutely, because usually a weak pelvic floor is tied with a really weak transverse abdominals too, and that uh, really uh, causes back pain, uh, or not causes can be a can be a contributing factor in back pain. And so, like when you know we talked about carrying the car seat forward or carrying the baby close to the heart as a mom does that if she has back pain if she just in that moment if she has back pain pulls her belly button to her spine there's usually a relief almost immediately that motion of pulling up and in relieves the lower back which is important because there it's bearing a lot i mean literally and you know metaphorically in those in those first couple months and years sometimes too i still carry my kids you know they're heavy yeah
2: so true This is part of what I think is so interesting about this discussion and kind of a thing we need to talk about more is like, we can, if we will inhabit our bodies and pay attention to these things, Mm. we can work with them in ways that Mm -hmm. seems, seem totally inaccessible, right? Like just being taught by my doula, how to use my pelvic floor muscles really change the way I think about that part of my body. And there are so many externalities of that. When my massage therapist works on my jaw, I immediately feel that connection to the pelvic floor. Like you can just start to understand how your body works in a totally different way.
3: Well, and you, you do a lot of yoga, yes. right? Mm-hmm. I, I,
2: yoga, yoga is like a really great
3: other way into this. I come from a yeah. really nerdy kind of space, but there's a, there's another way in with breath and yoga work and postures and poses that help you find a released pelvic floor and a lifted one too, you know,
2: Yes,
3: it's really helpful.
2: What have we not asked you about that you think people really need to know? I think they need to know to exercise
3: when they're pregnant. Mm. That's what I think
2: they need to know.
3: But like exercise Um, is such a big word. I think that exercise during pregnancy is the number one way to control what feels like an uncontrollable experience. And I'm not talking about weight mm-hmm. here. I'm talking about the physical experience of being in your body and right. of having all of these often really uncomfortable sensations and exercise can help with all of them. Exercise can help with swelling. It can help with constipation. It can help with back pain. It can help with carpal tunnel. Like for me, even though that, so I, I worked with, I work, my company, I've worked for O Baby Fitness for, I guess it was like eight years before I had my first pregnancy and I had a Miserable, a miserable pregnancy. Despite this being, you know, all I do is work for pregnant people all the time, and I'm around them all the time. And the only time I felt halfway sane was when I was moving my body. And it's not, again, and like you know, the Kardashians and exercise and diet and this and that. It's it's not about that. It is about reclaiming, reclaiming, the experience of being in your own body and that. That I also think is true postpartum, that it's not a to-do list. It's not a to-do item. It is a tool to find your way back to yourself during this period that
1: a lot of women, I think, struggle to do that. I love that, a tool back to yourself. I think that's true of exercise in all stages of life.
3: Yeah. It feels tricky sometimes to justify it when you've got a little baby, but it it is so helpful for the physical and mental health of the mother, which is then so helpful for those babies too, you know? And doing it with other women, doing it with other moms in a class or even just your group of friends is that community part of it on top of the exercise. That's
2: the gold. I think that's my life's work. That's what I do at my job. And I think it's just so important. And what is your biggest piece of advice for the partners of women who have recently had babies?
3: Give them space to move as they want to and to not move
2: as they want to.
3: And to, there should be no more demands put on a, a mother's body than there already are. And just take care of them. That, that you know, what you're talking about, that being in bed and people bringing you the baby, that is a powerful thing. Because a mom, after they have a baby, a lot is asked of them still. You know, and I talked about, I had that tough pregnancy. And then I couldn't believe, like, the baby comes out finally. Days and days of labor, the baby comes out. And then I'm like, and now I got to do what with this baby? And how many... <sighs> Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I just did, I just was like the sole caregiver for 10 months and now I have to do this. Being patient and, and taking care of, of the mom. And I know that's, that's tough. You know, I think, I see a lot of dads do things that I don't, I don't recommend, which is like worrying about weight and, you know, mm. getting them back into their clothes and like, dude, no, like you're, that is so <laughs> not... Help, number one, it's not helpful. Number two, like, you got to get you got to wrap your head around like your life is different now. And that's not the important thing for maybe ever again. But certainly <laughs> not for a long time. Do you know what I mean, though? Like, who- well, and it's
1: just a metaphor for everything. Right? Oh, right? Yeah, if, like, you right? can't, if you can't let it the short term for a long term with your physical body, you're gonna have to struggle with it in other realms of your existence.
3: And I also think too, this is like, this is maybe not true, but I think for dads, there's this sense of like, I want to get back to normal. Have I lost my wife? Has she gone crazy? Or this is honestly, this is me talking about my own experience, because I did have pretty severe prenatal depression. And I could see my husband just being like, is my wife still there? Is my wife still in there? And I think some <laughs> spouses then get like real fixated on the physical side of it. Like, we're gonna be fine. We're gonna get back to how things were. It'll be, you know, it's controlling what again, is feels like a really out of control experience of introducing a new little creature to the family.
2: Right. Thank you so
3: much. Of course. Of course. I hope that was helpful. You guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: So to leave you with something inspirational this week, Beth and I both sort of simultaneously found poems we really liked. So I will read mine first. It is called Bread of Tomorrow by Ruth Burgess. The desert waits, ready for those who come who come obedient to the Spirit's leading, or who are driven, because they will not come any other way. The desert waits, ready to let us know who we are, the place of self-discovery. And while we fear, and rightly, the loneliness and emptiness and harshness, we forget the angels, whom we cannot see for our blindness, but who come when God decides that we need their help when we are ready for what they can give us.
2: I love that, and I wanted to share Ask Me by William Stafford. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I have made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought, and some have tried to help or to hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I will listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there, hidden, hidden. And there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode. And until next week, keep it nuanced, Joe.